Let's pray as we begin our time this morning. Our Holy Father, it's a gift of grace to be able to approach you. And we can do that on the basis of the work of Christ. I pray this morning that you would allow your word to be preached and proclaimed, heralded in such a way as to where we are able to behold the beauty and the majesty of Christ. Your word tells us that we become like that which we behold. Oh, would you fill our hearts with Christ? Would you allow nothing to dazzle us this morning more than Christ? Would you show us the depth of our need this morning and how Christ alone meets our need? God, as we look unto Christ, we pray that you would favorably look unto us. Would you allow the next few moments together to stir our love for you most clearly by reminding us of your love for us. Tall order ahead. This sermon is not going to accomplish that type of beholding. And so, Spirit, do your work to allow the sermon that is heard to be far more effective than the one that is preached. For your glory and for our good, we pray these things. Amen. I wonder if you've thought about what you want for Christmas yet. If not, let this little intro serve to remind you that you have about 20 days. One of the more fun aspects of our Christmas celebrations is that we get to tell other people what we want, and if they like us, they give us what we want, and uh, which you can read into that awkward moment where you receive something that you did not want. Um, but we also get to give others things in which they want. We feel cared for. We feel loved. We feel seen. We feel known whenever friends and family give us gifts that we want. But what about when you receive a gift that you need? And I realize that sometimes what we need is not always what we want. But it is hard to put in words the emotions and the feeling whenever someone meets not a want that you have, but a need that you have. And in some ways, this is difficult for us to understand because we find ourselves in one of the most wealthy of cultures. But greater, the greater the need, oftentimes the greater the joy, the greater the emotion, the greater the gratitude. And odds are your Christmas lists this year aren't populated with a lot of things that you need. But here's the reality that the Christmas story reminds us of. We are a needy people. We're needy. You're needy. And we can do a pretty good job of quieting the need, hiding the need. But the reality is that when we stand before a holy and righteous and good God, we find ourselves needy. We're needy. And the Christmas story is a reminder of just how needy we are, all of humanity. 
And so the question that we want to pose as we walk through this Advent sermon series is, what if our Christmas celebrations really, truly were Christ-centered, fixated upon the one who has met our deepest and greatest need? Well, to help us truly have Christ-treasuring and Christ-centered celebrations this Christmas, we are taking our Advent sermon series to walk through the names of this one who we find lying in a manger. Advent, as Ronnie shared with us last week, it means coming and celebrating Advent is like the reenacting of the many years of waiting that God's people did as they longed for the coming of God's Messiah. And our hope is that at the end of these few weeks, the meaning and the truth of Christmas is in clearer focus bringing about a more genuine, heartfelt celebration because we can say, unlike the saints of old that were waiting, that salvation has come. It's here. And as we prime our hearts to remember and to reflect on what it was like to wait then, we find ourselves waiting even now for his return. And so may this season give us gratitude for the fact that he has come. And may it give us longing. For his return. And this year we're considering the prophecy that was given some 700 years before the birth of Jesus the Christ. This prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 reminds us that the one who would be lying in the manger is far greater than we could ever imagine or understand. And the backdrop for what's happening in Isaiah chapter 9, really if you want to walk back uh, to the beginning of Isaiah, you begin to just see God has raised up a prophet for his people to deliver to them his news. And these people, his people, are a rebellious people. You get to Isaiah chapter 7 and you find one of the wicked kings, King Ahaz, says, I will not and we as a people will not trust God. We are going to trust other countries and nations. And the Lord says, well, with that comes consequences and judgment. And in the midst of this, this is what is coming, judgment-type passage of Isaiah chapter 7, the Lord says, in great mercy and grace, but there is hope. You will know that the Lord has not forgotten you because I will give you a sign. In Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, the sign is that a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. And they may not stop us in our shoes to think, wow, the sign is going to be a, a virgin who's pregnant to call this child Emmanuel. But when we stop and to consider, wait, the sign is going to be a supernatural conception. And his name is going to let us know his identity. He will be God with us. And so perhaps you're here this morning and you think, maybe God has abandoned me. You may not be facing the impending foreign invasions or a national crisis like the people in Isaiah chapter 7 were. But maybe, maybe you don't realize that your need is greater than that. And God in great mercy... In need of our, or in light of our great need, has given us one supernaturally conceived who will be God with us. Because of our sin, because we are rightly under the wrath of God, in light of the 
the eternal and holy treason that we have committed against this God to whom we are accountable to and were created for. With darkened hearts, without excuse before a holy God, God in great mercy and grace would send his own son in the likeness of sinful man. And what we want to behold this morning is the good news that hope has dawned and salvation has come. And that is good news for a weary people who are heavy laden and burdened by their sin. I pray that you and I would not miss the significance of the Christmas story. It's a rescue story that every one of us are in need of. And so the invitation in this story the invitation in this account, the invitation over the next several weeks is not merely to get caught up in the sentimental, but to come to the one who has come to address your greatest need, far greater than anything you will write on a Christmas list this year. Well, you would think that the story then, if there's hope that's coming, okay, then Ahaz repents and the people turn and they trust in their God and that's not what happens. Isaiah chapter 8 is just more darkness of what happens whenever a rebellious people walk against their God. You get to Isaiah chapter 9 and you're thinking, okay, this is where God is done with his people. They just don't get it. He is going to send a sign and yet Isaiah chapter 9 for seven verses, the first seven verses are just rays of hope bursting onto the scene of the sin-laden dark backdrop. And you're going, why in the world would God do this? And we begin to see that God is committed to loving his people. And we come to this verse, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And so this one who would come through the conception in the womb of a virgin is exactly what we need. And Ronnie led us last week to consider how Jesus, God the Son, is wonderful counselor. He's endowed with absolute wisdom. He's in need of no other opinions. He is full of truth. One of the the sweetest nuggets in Ronnie's sermon last week was just directing my heart to Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. And I've just been able to soak in that truth this week. That Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I mean, he is the treasure trove of wisdom and knowledge. And it's silly for us to think that we can find wisdom or truth elsewhere. And so this morning, I wonder if you're in need of direction. I wonder if you're in need of counsel. I wonder if you're in need of guidance or of being heard and walked alongside. If so, I want to encourage you that this one who has come through the womb of the virgin, lying in the manger, he is the wonderful counselor. But the prophecy doesn't end that he's just going to be a wonderful counselor. No, what we read is that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And this is where we turn our attentions this morning. Mighty God. Whoever did the sermon calendar gave me the task of showing how Jesus is Mighty God. It was not fair. 
And as I thought about this and just wrestled through, I want this to be so practical. The thought that has kind of nagged me all week is, Justin, where is the application? Where's the application? Like In your points, like pull out the application. I've just been served this week to consider even what the psalmist says in Psalm 34, 5, that as we look unto Christ, we will be radiant. We will be full of the glory, the transfix, just the, the, the shown, the imaged glory of beholding who he is. Psalm 45, 22, look unto me and you will find salvation. We know what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. As you behold his glory, it changes us from one degree, degree of glory to another. And so I've wrestled all week to just go, I want to give such practical helps. I want this to be a helpful sermon that people feel like I can walk away kind of holding on to doing these things in light of this truth. And I just want you to know up front, this is the application. Behold this Christ. Behold him. Don't let anything else dazzle you. Ambrose would say, give your life looking unto Christ. May he be fixated, centered. May, may he be the banquet table from which we never rise because we are full. I'm helped by Spurgeon in speaking, preaching on this text. He stands up and he begins by saying, I have nothing to do tonight but to preach Christ to you and to put Christ before you. Jeffrey Wilson says, these the Hebrews that we're going to jump to in a minute, these Hebrews, they were faltering in their faith because they had entertained a faulty view of Christ. And so the most practical thing that the author of Hebrews is going to do for us this morning is to tell us to behold Christ. Be mesmerized, be dazzled with, be intimately acquainted with this one who has come, who is indeed mighty God. And so to, be, to, to better help us understand and get our minds somewhat around or at least fixated on this truth of Christ Jesus as mighty God, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter one. There's much we could say about this book, but suffice it to say that the author of Hebrews, whom we don't know who wrote, he is enamored with Christ. There is nothing more amazing, more extraordinary, more, uh, there's no greater clarity and wonder. He presents this beautiful picture of Christ. And he's writing to a group of Christians that are in need of, of some encouragement. They're in need of encouragement to not give up in light of hardship and persecution that they're experiencing. And it's interesting, you think, okay, if you're, you're writing to a group of people that are struggling, that are in need of encouragement, why in the world would you begin with this massive, beautiful mountain range of who Christ is? And I think that's where Kent Hughes is helpful in saying that the healing method that the writer of Hebrews used is to lift the Son of God higher and higher and higher so that these whom he's writing to would see that the most practical thing on earth 
is looking unto Christ. These Christians seem to be tempted to go back to the way it was whenever they were living under kind of the enslavement of their religious ritual. And the author of Hebrews, if I could just sum up the whole book, he would say, don't do that. Why? Because Jesus is better. Christ is better. Paul, in, talking, in writing to the Galatians, says something similar. He says, don't go back to that which once enslaved you. You've tasted freedom. Christ is better. And so the whole book seeks to make that aim clear, that Christ is better. And we see this beginning in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, there's no greeting, there's no introduction, there's just a strong case that Jesus Christ is the superior revelation of God. And in order to make that point, the author of Hebrews says, well, let's do a, let's do a compare and contrast. And so he's going to make the point that Christ is the superior revelation of God. And he begins by saying, let's go back to the revelation that we have all thought was most superior. And that is what he has said in and through the prophets. What has he said in and through his word as he raised up men who would be his mouthpiece? And I want to be clear, the contrast here is not with there's a God who was silent and a God who speaks. No, the author of Hebrews is clear. God has always been speaking. He is not a God who is silent. Francis Schaeffer would say, God is there and he is not silent. And so in order to make clear this contrast, okay, so if Christ, if Jesus is the better revelation, the superior revelation, then how is he going to make that point? He begins by talking about long ago, God spoke through prophets. Men who were raised up were given a divine mandate with a divine message to deliver to God's people. And it's interesting what he says. He says he spoke through or in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. If you were just to do the survey of the Old Testament, what you would find is that God speaks to his people. He even equips and speaks to his prophets to deliver to his people through a, a host of ways. He uses sermons, he uses warnings, he uses dreams, he uses visions, he uses the law, he uses prophecy, he uses signs and wonders. God's speech throughout the Old Testament was diverse and varied from prophet to prophet. And yet, let it be clear, what the author of Hebrews is not saying is that the word then was somehow wrong or faulty. No, it was still the infallible, breathed out, given by God himself. And so we shouldn't read that the author is somehow saying that it was irrelevant or wrong, but what the author is saying is that there would be a speech and a voice that would be stronger and clearer. It would be the fulfillment of all of the prophecies and the looking aheads. What is it? Where is all of this leading us? And the author of Hebrews would say it would lead us to this one, the Christ. Where the prophets were many, Christ is one. Where the prophets were sinners, Christ would be perfectly holy. Where the prophets were given for preparation, Christ would be the final fulfillment. 
God is not silent. He's not withdrawn. He's not uncommunicative. And if you think this morning that God somehow is silent, can I just encourage you, look unto Christ. He has spoken. He continues to speak. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 continues. In these last days has spoken to us in his son. The contrast is clearly stated. Verse 1, from long ago. Verse 2, in these last days. These last days is the period of time between Jesus' ascension and his return. And this is a good word for us. It's a good word for us that these last days he has given us, he's spoken to us. There's no need for us to put our kind of finger to the to the wind and say, where is the new revelation? Where is the new speech? Christ. Christ is the final word. I'm helped as Lig Duncan, theologian, pastor, president of a seminary, put it this way. Jesus is not merely a truth option, but he's the truth. And he says, there's no other prophet that's needed, as our Muslim friends would contend. We don't need to wait for Muhammad for God's final word. Christ is the final word. And the contrast is not just from long ago to in these last days, but he spoke to our fathers, and now he speaks to us. And he's done it from the prophets, and now he does it in his son. The author's just stated that this one whom we celebrate at Christmas is the clearest and fullest revelation of God that has ever been given. So think about that. The clearest and fullest revelation of God that has ever been given. So I just wonder, does that type of weight, and I don't think, when I say weight, I don't mean somber, serious, but does that type of reality and truth anchor your Christmas celebrations? Is your heart even now prepared and readied to hear from and to sing to and to pray to this one who has been merciful and gracious? When God no longer spoke through the prophets, but he came close, we could say that he gave us the greatest Christmas gift of all times by giving us what we needed most. And what the author of Hebrews does over the next two verses is literally just... Open the fire hydrant. And if you've ever driven by, whenever the fire department is doing that, I mean, it is, it's in control, they're in control, but it seems uncontrollable. I mean, it's, it is a massive burst of force. And the author of Hebrews is seeking to overwhelm and to convince us that Christ is better. And, in, and one of the ways that he does this, it's kind of a, a literary feature in all throughout the Bible, is that he used what's what we call a chiasm. A chiasm is you're trying to make a point, and you maybe do it in a way that's somewhat ordered, and so you would go A, B, C, C, B, A. So you're kind of reiterating your points, but you're doing them in varied fashion. And that's really what the author of Hebrews does. It's enthronement, divine power, 
divine nature, divine nature, divine power, enthronement. And that's what we're going to walk through. We are going to put our face in front of this fire hydrant. I do not recommend trying that ever. But this is what we're going to do in hopes of just beholding the unparalleled, the majestic, the treasure trove of all goodness and wisdom and the might of God himself, Jesus the Christ. The author of Hebrews gives us seven reasons why Jesus is superior. And the application for us this morning, fight to fix your gaze upon this Christ. Behold him and beg God that you would become like the one you are beholding. So number one, Jesus is the appointed heir of all things. Jesus is the appointed heir of all things. So again, this one whom is in the manger, this one whom we celebrate, this baby who's, who's born, and our Christmas celebrations are revolving around, our Advent longings are looking for, this one is the appointed heir of all things. Look at verse two. He's spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. This would be the enthronement. The whole world belongs to God the Son. The whole world belongs to Jesus. Jesus is the king of the whole world. Why in the world would the author begin here? I mean, what we're going to see next is he was the creator. I'm thinking to myself, why in the world would we not begin with he created everything and he's the appointed heir of all things? But instead, he begins with he's the appointed heir of all things. Why? I believe it's because of what he's just said in the previous verse. If he is the heir of all things, then he has all things at his disposal. That means that whenever he speaks, he can keep good on his word. He lacks nothing. Think about this. Jesus would come... And Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We can have confidence in that because the one who makes that promise is the one who owns all the earth. It's all under his control. When he says in Romans chapter 8 that nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, he can make good on that because he owns all of creation. It's all under his control. This would be a reference. He's appointed heir of all things to, to this promise that God makes to David in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, regarding this coming one, this Messiah. And what we find is this baby who's born to Mary, to Joseph. This is David's promised son, the promised Messiah, the appointed heir and owner and Lord over all things. And here's the good news. If you are a follower of Jesus, if there's come a time in your life where you've turned from your sin and you've placed your faith and your trust in the finished work of Christ alone, then Romans 8, 16 and 17 remind us that if we are in him, then we then become heirs, co-heirs with Christ. 
And you're just beginning to think, wait, I don't deserve this status. And that's what the Christmas story, that's what the Christian faith is meant to overwhelm you with, is that because God loves like this, you have received something that you are unworthy of. And by his grace, we can come under his good reign and rule. And so friends, look unto Jesus because Jesus is doing and being the one who has been appointed heir of all things, in control of all things, he is doing what only God can do. But it's not just he's been appointed heir of all things as the fire hydrant begins to get going. The end of verse two, through whom also he made the world. And so second point, that the author of Hebrews is seeking to impress upon us. It's not just that Jesus is the appointed heir of all things, but Jesus is the creator of the world. And so again, we've gone from enthronement to divine power. Creation is something that only God knows and only God does. And this reminds us that Jesus is the word. It takes us back to both what we read in John 1, that the word was there with God, the word was creating. It also takes us back to what we read in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what John does in, in John chapter 1, it expands and clarifies what's happening in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, through the word. And without him was not anything that was made or not it, and without him was not anything made that was made. And you say, okay, so it sounds like the word was there with God and the word was the agent of creation. But how do we know what the word is? Well, John chapter one, verse 14 will tell us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the rest of the Bible has been anticipating the coming of God the Son, who we would know as Jesus the Christ, who would take on flesh humble himself to obedience, even to the point of death, death on a cross. If we could go to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. In other words, the Father has created all things through the Son and for the Son. And that means then that this one whom we remember and celebrate this Christmas season is the one for whom we were created. Everything in existence finds its ultimate meaning and purpose through and in the Son. And I'm, I'm well aware that there may be some of you this morning that are not followers of Jesus. That you're seeking to find your purpose and understanding and kind of how in the world, what am I here for? And you're seeking to find that in all the other places except in the sun and through the sun. I would just encourage you, Christmas is a good time to at least consider the claims of the Christian faith. If you're here and you just would say, I don't, I don't, I don't know what all I need to be considering, or I don't, 
I've never considered that, or I've tried to consider that, and I've been confused. It would be the joy of any member of this church to just be able to sit with you and to say, okay, let's open the word of God, and let's see what God says about himself, and let's see what God says about us, and how then can we see that Christ is indeed what we need? Find anyone after the service. Talk to us. We would be delighted to talk to you. And so, brothers and sisters, look unto Jesus. Because Jesus is doing, in creating the world, he's doing what only God can do. But it's not just he's appointed heir of all things and he's the creator of the world. Third, we see in verse three, he is the radiance of his glory. Number three, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the radiance of God's glory. This would take us, we've gone from enthronement to divine power. Now we're at divine nature. As hot and as brilliant as the sun is in our, in our solar system, we would never feel or enjoy its light or its heat without the radiating beams that come to the earth. So it is with Jesus, the Son of the Father. He is the radiance, the shining forth, the brightness, the blazing center of the glory of God. And just in studying this week, and, and man, it was so easy to get off track in studying this this week, and maybe I did, and this may be evidence of it. But it's the difference between a radiated light and a reflected light. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's not the reflection of God's glory. And I believe there's a difference. When light, uh, when light radiates from a source, it contains part of that source. When light is reflected off of a source, it doesn't contain Part of that source. And so let's think of the sun. The light that radiates from the sun contains the essence of the sun in it. And so the sun is burning at 15,000 degrees. The light from the sun leaves the sun and travels thousands of miles and lands in an, a cornfield, a soybean field in Iowa. And when it lands there, we can feel its warmth even though we are thousands and thousands of miles away. We feel the warmth of the sun's fire because the radiated light contains the essence of that fire. That's why if we stay out in that soybean field in Iowa without a shirt on, we will get sunburned because we feel the, the warmth and because that light contains the essence of the heat. Now, Let's contrast that with reflected light. Think of the moon. Moonlight doesn't come from the moon. Huh. News to me this week. <laughs> that may or may not be true. Uh, West Tennessee education on display. But moonlight doesn't come from the moon. It actually bounces off the moon. And I realize none of you are going to appreciate this as much as I did. Uh, moonlight does not contain the essence of the moon. It's a reflection of another source. That's why none of us get moonburn. 
And so the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus doesn't merely reflect God's glory. He radiates God's glory. It's radiating the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God that we see all throughout the Old Testament. It's radiating from Jesus. Why? Because he innately contains the glory of God. So he is radiating what he contains. He doesn't get the brightness from anywhere else, but from God. He innately possesses that glory. And why does that matter at Christmas? Because unless we see it, unless we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we will perish in our sin. Sin is when we fall short of the glory of God. We're not glorifying him. We're not giving him what's rightly his. And so without the son, there's no way we would know the father, Jesus tells us. John 1, 18 says it this way, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. John chapter one, verse 14, he saw his glory or we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And so when we think about the celebrations around this baby lying in the manger, who's taken on flesh to dwell among us, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Not because he's reflecting something, but because he possesses something. Look unto Jesus, because Jesus, being the radiance of God's glory, is doing what only God can do. But fourth, Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. Look at verse 3. He's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And so again, we've gone enthronement, divine power, divine nature. Now this is another statement about divine nature. These last two traits of Christ don't just make clear what he does, it makes clear who he is. And the word that's used here is the Greek, uh, in the Greek is uh, meant to signify this impression that is left on something when there's an imprint, like something like a stamp on a seal. The stamp that is made corresponds exactly to the image Jesus is the exact imprint. It means that there's, a, there's an exact correspondence between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus would say to Philip in John chapter 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you want to know what God is like? Look unto Jesus. He is the exact representation of the nature of God. Paul would later say in Colossians chapter 2 verse 9, for in him Christ, the whole fullness of deity, all of God dwells bodily in Christ. And so it makes sense then that Jesus would radiate God's glory because he is the exact representation of God's being. There are two distinct persons, there is one essence of God. And God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. 
And so the author of Hebrews would say, Jesus is better. You never need to wonder what God thinks or what's important to God because we can look unto Christ to know what he thinks, to know what is important. And so friends, look unto Jesus because in Jesus being the exact representation of his nature, he is doing what only God can do. Fifth thing, Jesus is the sustainer of the world. Look at verse three. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the power of his word. And so we've gone enthronement, divine power, divine nature, divine nature. Now we're back at divine power. The one we celebrate at Christmas upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is not only heir of all things and creator of all things, he is the sustainer of all things. He upholds all things. He maintains all things. He controls all things. He supports all things. Again, go back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. This is what we read. That before all things, Christ is before all things, and in him, in Christ, all things hold together. And so the reality of Jesus as the sustainer of all things, it's not the picture. We shouldn't picture uh, Atlas kind of eternally struggling to hold up the world and everything that's in it. No, that's not how he sustains. He ensures things are upheld. He doesn't do it based on the size of his shoulders. He does it based on the power of his word. There's authority in his word. There's might in his word. There's strength in his word. Which is why the Christian faith is a word-centered faith and we are to be a word-centered people. The same word that created existence from nothing. The same word that called dead Lazarus out of his tomb. The same word that goes out in the gospel and makes Sinners, dead sinners, alive and new. That word upholds all things. By his power, by the power of, by the word of his power, Jesus will perfect all his good work. And we'll be able to say with Jude, now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory forevermore. In creation, he calls things to exist out of nothing. In preservation, he sustains all things in existence. And in his providence, he takes that which is created and that which he's sustaining, and he's directing them towards the end which he has planned. That means that your kidneys and your pancreas and your freckles and the flesh and the chair, the pew that you're sitting on and the ground beneath your feet and the air that you breathe and the shirt on your back and the car that you drive and the soccer ball that you kick and the love that you feel and the joy that you experience and the people that you sit next to this morning, they have all been created by the Son of God and they are being upheld. They are being sustained by this same Christ and, and it's so sustained that if even for one millisecond he, would, he were to withdraw his power, everything would go awry. And all of this, 
he's doing to orchestrate the God-ordained ends. Friends, look unto Jesus. Because as Jesus is sustaining all things, he's doing only, or that which only God can do. Brings us to number six. Jesus made purification of sins. We see this in verse three. When he had made purifications of sins. We arrive yet hanging out yet again, divine power. And after such a cosmic picture of who Jesus is, this phrase is almost shocking to us. This one who's as high as God, it's stunning that he would come low to us. This is the wonder of the incarnation. This is the wonder of the Christmas season. That he would come as low as us, but that he would also bear our sin. That's even more stunning. This is the Christmas glory, that the maker would become a man, that the bread of life would go hungry, that the fountain of living water would be thirsty, that the light of the world would become darkness, that the way of truth and life would become weak and weary and would die. He would expire for us. Long ago, in the days of promise, priests would repeatedly offer sacrifice for their sins and for the sins of the people. But God, in these last days, the days of fulfillment, through Christ, would present a better offering. He would be a more faithful high priest. He would be the, quint, the quintessential priest, offering himself as the sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to uphold divine love. How in the world can we ever be made right with the God whom we're accountable to and the God who created us when his justice needs to be satisfied and yet his love needs to be upheld? God would take on flesh and would do for us what we couldn't do and would bear for us what we have rightly earned so that because of great grace and mercy and love, those who don't deserve arms of embrace would receive it. This is the greatest gift that could ever be given. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I have no clue what you're throwing yourself on this morning for hope and support and maybe even to answer that final question, how will you ever stand right before God? Your works are insufficient. They will not earn you right standing before God. You need the work of another. Not one who's merely like you, but one who is like you, but who's also completely different than you, who's able to do what you can't do. And friends, this is where the coming of Christ is the hope that we need because Christ has done for us what we could not do. And the Bible says that all who are willing to turn from their sin and place their faith and their trust in Christ, they can know this purification of sin. They can know forgiveness of sin. They can know what it's like to be embraced by God, not judged and bear the right wrath of his. And so again, if you are not a follower of Christ, we would plead with you, turn from your sin and trust him. Do that today. There is purification of sin that's available. All of your filth, all of your foulness, all of your 
dirtiness can be washed clean and there can be forgiveness of sin. Not just sin that you committed once and then we'll see about the future, but no, forgiveness of sin once for all. That's why Jesus is the better high priest. He's not continually making atonement. Jesus didn't come to bail us out of financial distress. He didn't come to provide a curriculum of study on how we can improve our education. He didn't come to articulate a psychological formula that would help us feel better about ourselves. Those are not our greatest problem. The single greatest problem is not our esteem. It's the the threat to the well-being of our souls, both now and for all of eternity. And that's what Christ has come to address. And so again, just hear this, your self-indulgent efforts to try to please God will not work. Come to the end of those and trust in the work of Christ. You say, Justin, that sounds good. But if I put my hope in that, it seems like that just like every other religious figure, Jesus is still dead in the grave. And that brings us to point number seven is that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, taking us back to enthronement. Being at the right hand of God the Father is the highest position in the universe. The writer of Hebrews is writing us to say that the work that he came to do, it was sufficient. If you and I were to walk into the temple in the Old Testament, what you would not find anywhere associated with the priest were chairs because their work was, all, was never done. They always had to stand in order to perform their duties. And what we find is Christ now is seated. His work is done. He has risen triumphantly from the grave. And so that's why we hope, not just praise God that he came, but that's why we hope and we anticipate his return. He will come and he will gather all of his people. And there's not one wrong that has been endured that will not be made right. You say, Justin, how in the world can we trust that? Because he has been appointed heir of all things. He's over everything. And so the one that we celebrate at Christmas, he has addressed our greatest need. And he's addressed it because he's truly man and he's truly God. One author put it this way, in infancy, Christ startled a king. In boyhood, he puzzled the learned scholars. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows and he hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine. He made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, yet all the libraries of the world could not hold the books about him. He never wrote a song, yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all songwriters together. He never founded a college, yet all the schools together cannot boast of as many students as he has. He's never practiced medicine, yet he's healed more broken hearts than all the doctors have healed broken bodies. This Jesus Christ is the star of astronomy, the rock of geology, the lion and the lamb of zoology. He's the harmonizer of all discords, the healer of all diseases. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him, and the grave could not hold him. And so we gather and we celebrate this Advent season. This one who has come, huh, he's mighty God. Then the response is to behold him and to give him what's rightly his. And that's everything. Let's pray.